You're listening to Queers, a podcast about politics and culture with Simon Copland and Benjamin Riley. It's the 29th of November, 2017. I'm Benjamin Riley, and welcome to Queers. Each episode, we talk our way through questions on a theme, and today we have an interview for you with writer, producer, and HIV activist Nick Hollis. Nick is perhaps best known for founding the Institute of Many, a network for people living with HIV, which you'll hear more about during the interview, and for his HIV activism and advocacy. I caught up with Nick in Melbourne recently to talk about his work, about a big few years in HIV treatment and prevention in Australia, and about how the legacy of HIV and the AIDS crisis inform current generational divides in queer Australia. We recorded the interview in the studio of our podcast network, Earbuds, so thank you to Earbuds for having us. If you haven't done so, you should definitely check out the other fantastic shows that are part of the network. Okay, enjoy the interview. We are joined today by, I look, when I was thinking of ways to introduce my guest, I was trying to come up with lots of different nouns. There are many that are appropriate. I've gone with activist, writer, and producer, Nicholas. Sure, absolutely. Culture change maker, you know. Culture change maker. Dion Kagan once referred to me as a local hero, which I... Oh my God. Well, was kind of offensive. <laughs> you, because clearly like national and international. Yeah, hero. yeah, yeah. yeah I'm a yeah, global yeah. phenomenon. Yeah. Um, oh God, this is such an egomaniacal way to kick off. <laughs> Especially given you're drinking water from a mug that says global phenomenon. <laughs> um, so yeah, just, you know, setting, a, setting an appropriate tone for the, the rest of the interview. I was trying to think also when I was... Uh, getting ready to chat with you how we met. And I believe it was at AIDS 2014, the big International AIDS Society conference Mm -hmm. that was in Melbourne in 2014. And I was writing a story about prep for the Star Observer. Gosh, all the way back then. Feels like a very, very long time ago. AIDS 2014 in particular feels like a lifetime ago. Uh, That was a a pivotal moment in my career as an activist. And a pivotal moment, I think, for... Uh, the modern day HIV sector in Australia. How so? Uh, I think it, I mean, AIDS 2014 is uh, a moment in a series of moments that kind of starts around, you know, 2012, 2013 um, uh, for the HIV response. Uh, And it's one of the things that's helped drop into fifth gear for a pretty rapid acceleration uh, with some progress after a, a rather extended period of not so much inactivity, but just not a lot of news. And then in early 2013, you had um, ACON launch the Ending HIV campaign, uh, which was picked up in, in some jurisdictions and, and was certainly, I think, a pretty landmark moment. Sure, so that was um, a very, very big and high-profile uh HIV prevention and, and treatment public health campaign. Yeah, yeah, which 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 um, set the ambitious target of, of virtually eliminating HIV in New South Wales by twenty twenty. Um, it was exciting because it well it was a it was a pretty radical rethink in terms of a health promotion campaign and strategy. Um, uh, but it also um, uh, boldly uh, spoke to the importance of undetectable viral loads, um, and that was really the first time. Um, uh, an AIDS council had um, put that on the line. Sure. It wasn't just rolling out the same old line about condoms and keeping everyone safe. So I want to um, get into sort of prep a bit more detailed mm-hmm. around prep and undetectable viral load probably a little bit later. But what were you what were you doing at the conference? 
I was uh, doing a lot. Um, so Tim, uh, the Institute of Many, which is the um, HIV movement I co-founded. So can you uh, tell us a little bit about, about what that is? Sure. Uh, so the Institute of Many is now five years old as of just this weekend gone. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, I When we started, I never kind of anticipated having a fifth birthday for it. Uh, so uh, Tim is Australia's largest grassroots movement for people living with HIV. Uh, we operate uh, a digital online community, communities, actually, uh, one for people living with HIV and one for anyone who identifies as a woman living with HIV. Um, it makes us the largest member-based movement or organisation uh, in Australia. Uh, and uh, we, so we run a digital space as well as some online meetup uh, social chapters around the country, uh, and we use all of that uh, uh, to build an advocacy platform. So we activate on grassroots issues relating to the lived experience of people living with HIV. How did you? I mean, how did you end up creating it? Like, where did where did it come from? Uh, so I was diagnosed HIV positive in October, very late October, two thousand and twelve. And a few weeks later, I found myself at a Genesis workshop in Sydney. Uh, the Genesis workshop uh, is a version of a workshop that's op- offered uh, in, I think, most places around Australia, uh, certainly on the Eastern Seaboard, sorry, um, for newly diagnosed um, gay men uh, who were living with HIV. And at that workshop, I met a uh, South Carolina gentleman by the name of Jeff Lang. Uh, and Jeff and I were both diagnosed around the same time. We were both only a few weeks into it. We were both the same age. We were both 30 at that point in our lives. And we were both kind of doing okay. I mean, obviously, it's a big piece of news, no matter what age, no matter what generation you are, and you've got to process it. But we were kind of doing well. We'd already disclosed to the majority of our family members, our you know, closest friends knew. And we, yeah, we, we were kind of good with it all um and we were both struck uh at the number of men in that same workshop who weren't doing so well some of these people had uh, been living with hiv for two years and had taken that long to get to a newly diagnosed Mm. support workshop um and in that time they'd cut themselves off from friends and family members some of them hadn't had sex for extended period of time up to two years and we just thought to ourselves if we are feeling this okay about our recent HIV status, uh, what that represents is a privilege and it's up to us to try and bring as many people as possible with us into feeling okay about it. And so the Institute of Many from that was born. And so what were you doing with Tim at AIDS 2014? Uh, Well, we were the new kids on the block at that point. Um, And there... Tim was kind of blowing up in terms of his membership and, and we'd already done, I guess, a, a fair bit of media. I'd, I'd published a story uh, in the first issue of Hello Mister that popped me on the cover and there had already been a couple of, I think, stories in the queer media around, uh, I guess, me as a new HIV activist and advocate and Tim's kind of initial success um, so I was there. I was a rapport, I was a volunteer rapporteur for the actual conference proper, um, and then that was the same week that I went on Q and A. Uh, there was a special World AIDS Day yes, version yeah, of yeah. ABC's Q and A, um, and that was that week. It was also my birthday. It was a very big week, <laughs> and it seemed like I mean I remember at the time it seemed like a really big deal to have 
any kind of openly HIV positive person on such a mainstream public forum like Q&A? It was a big deal and, and it was a lot of um, behind the scenes um, uh, planning uh, to make sure that a, a PLHIV, a person living with HIV, um, um, was on that panel. Um, and it was alongside, you know, Francoise Barresanosi and Michael Kirby and even Amanda Bloody Vanstone. Um, yes. So, you know, there, there was kind of a, 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 um, a certainly a sense of stepping up and scaling up of my activism and being on that panel. Um, and that was all happening around the same time that I was a sex worker and uh, working uh, in the porn industry as well. Um, and that was a much bigger scandal within the sector and, and the broader community and the media than I, I possibly foolishly thought it would be. Sure. I mean, it, it, that dovetails a bit into... A couple of things I wanted to talk about. I think it would be worth at this point going into a little bit more detail about what PrEP and undetectable viral load are. If, if people aren't aware, do you want to say say something briefly a- about that? Absolutely. Um, uh, it feels, you know, it's funny. We've I feel like we've been talking about this for so many years that we forget just, you know, uh, how small the echo chamber around HIV is. So, and that these are, these are quite technical topics in a lot of ways they're super technical and that's i think part of part of the um part of the issue so an undetectable viral load uh for those of you who are listening who might not have heard that term before uh means that uh for example uh, as an hiv positive person um the medications that i'm now able to access here in 2017 uh are such uh that uh i take a pill every single day and that suppresses the amount of virus in my blood uh, my HIV positive blood to such a degree that it is proven that uh, I cannot pass that on. So um, undetectable equals uh, uninfectious. Um, and that's maybe people might have heard of the U equals U thing that's that's had a lot of um, currency around the world now. Um, and to be clear, that's that's including in like all types of sex without condom use. Totally. Yep. Absolutely. So. Uh, and not only, I mean, that, that's, that's a really great um, health promotion benefit uh, in terms of ending HIV and, and, and stopping the on transmission of HIV. Uh, but those, uh, that daily treatment also keeps me alive. Uh, so, um, you know, uh, left untreated, um, my HIV would, you know, slowly start working its way through my body and, and, and my viral load would go up and up and up and up and up um, and my CD4 count uh, would go down and, you know, anywhere between five to ten years I could expect to start seeing some AIDS-defining illnesses. Um, having an undetectable viral load and, and staying on regular treatment means that my um, means that that's not going to happen mm. and I can expect to live a largely similar um, life expectancy uh, to someone else who is also 35 years old who has had my kind of background um, health-wise. Mm. And, uh, and PrEP, pro- people are probably a little more familiar with PrEP, I imagine, but do you want to just very briefly summarize that? Yeah, people would definitely be a little bit more familiar with PrEP, I think, because it's had um, a lot more of a moment in the media um, and it's uh, uh, for a whole bunch of reasons. Also, it's just easier to remember PrEP as a word as opposed to undetectable viral load. Um, yep. It's much easier. <laughs> um, so PrEP is a, another form of, of daily or regular ongoing medication uh, that it's taken by HIV negative people to prevent them from acquiring HIV uh, from to prevent them from becoming HIV positive. So uh, the easiest comparison is saying it's like 
the, the contraceptive pill. Yes, yeah. Uh, and, and also proven to be extremely effective. Not, I think, as... Not as, as effective, effective as, as having an undetectable viral load. Which is super, super important to remember, I think, but, but still virtually foolproof. Absolutely. Yep. Be- and better than condoms um, yes, yes. for a variety of reasons uh, when it comes to HIV. Um, and what's really exciting, I mean, I sometimes do slide into the slightly snide going, well, it's, you know, undetectable <laughs> is actually safer. Uh, the point is we now have two forms of or multiple forms but when it comes to kind of recent technological advances we've got two forms of uh, highly effective treatment that, m- that means that a hiv positive person can take care of their own health and take care of their partners and a person on prep can do the exact same thing and prep's really exciting because it's the first time really that a um, hiv negative person can ensure that they are taking care of themselves regardless of who they jump into bed with. Yes, beforehand, you know, you would rely on a partner using a condom and using it properly in some instances. Part of the reason I, I wanted to get a bit more detail about that when you were mentioning the uh, the controversies around your some of your professional history at the conference is when I think about my experiences of of HIV stigma when I was a younger gay man, both like certainly internalized and probably at times externalized. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of that revolves around the ways that HIV kind of creates this almost like good gay, bad gay situation yeah. in, in, in gay communities. And there are other things that do that as well, but, you know, it becomes this way to sort of like separate people who have HIV as a different kind of person with these developments like PrEP and, and undetectable viral load, do you, f- do you feel like that's kind of breaking down as quickly as that stuff is, is coming in? Uh, look, to, to take a really positive um, approach on it, absolutely. Uh, the advances that we've made in a kind of cultural studies area, um, thanks to PrEP, um, can't be underestimated. Overestimated? Overstated? Thank you. Sure, yeah. that'll do. We're, f- we're seeing, and this is... This is kind of occurring in a bubble it's a big bubble but it's occurring in a bubble much greater sense of empathy and uh understanding of of the positive experience in negative communities for people who are taking prep and stuff i i do think i mean i think about this a lot and obviously um the uh, positive person's experience at a community level and individual level is something i spend a fair bit of time thinking about because in tim we're seeing a real-time ticker of thoughts and feelings of the positive experience i think that there when it comes to prep um we we, it's it's going to be so so valuable um to to bridge that zero divide i currently have some political concerns around communities being left behind by prep and by u equals u could you talk about that sure i think um firstly from, from a prep perspective there's a degree of frustration uh when we see what i call the blue carpet being rolled out and all the the noise and and trumpeting that's being done around how great prep is which is true at uh, finally curbing um hiv transmissions and for uh, this incredible biomedical intervention is being trumpeted as being very important highly successful etc 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 meanwhile for the last few decades and certainly kind of even in in the 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 recent times hiv positive people have been doing the heavy lifting and double duty 
on keeping ourselves safe, keeping as many people as who would deign to have sex with us in some instances safe, whilst we are increasingly under surveillance and increasingly criminalised. For a not insignificant amount of time, I think that the body positive has been blamed for either a, a, at least a plateauing, if not subtle increase in, in HIV notifications. And it's kind of, as the sector's kind of t- torn its hair out pre-prep as to, you know, why rates are going up and stuff or, or not going down at least. Um, and the, the HIV positive population has at least been, um, I think, implicitly blamed. And I think in, in more sort of social and casual queer spaces, explicitly, completely. Oh, sure. Totally, totally. And I, I say that because obviously, you know, the... AIDS councils uh, do understand, yes, you yes. know, understand actually what's going on, and, and and we've we've known for a long time that positive people, even though we haven't had the scientific data to to know that an undetectable viral load is a highly highly effective barrier, you know that, but yeah. So there's, but it's the criminalisation and the surveillance that for me kind of stick uh, a little bit because the the, the reach of surveillance uh, at a research and, and state level. Um, it should be of concern, you know, the, the kind of mapping of, of positive people and, and uh, new, new notifications and stuff. Um, and has that been increasing? Yes. In Australia? Uh, yeah, and certainly reaches to, for, for increased surveillance um, have been attempted. Last year, uh, New South Wales tried to uh, enact name notifications um, so that so the like a registry, yeah. So Jesus. so de-identif- so all new H- new HIV notifications are de-identified. So obviously, but they have to be. Uh, it's a what's it, it's called a notifiable. It's a notifiable, absolutely, yeah. and 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 you know that sort of that sort of data is really important. We don't want that to go away, but there was a push for that information to be uh, identified, and for any new diagnosed HIV positive person or an HIV positive person who accesses a hospital service or something like that to go onto this database so that New South Wales Health could have done um, what they said was more effective follow-up to retain people Holy in shit. care. It's so hard not to like just directly compare that to things like sex offender registries and Jesus. Totally, totally. And I mean, thankfully, we we pushed hard to make sure that didn't happen and it didn't. So that was coming from within the kind of bureaucracy of, of, of New South Wales Health. Yeah, and and we talked about this at the recent Ashram conference and uh, about it being an overreach that happens when stuff's going well. You know, in the, the general HIV epidemic in New South Wales, for example, as well as here in Victoria and Queensland and, and in many jurisdictions around Australia, is going very well. You know, we've got like 86% of PLHIV are already on treatment. So we're a 4% points off the 90-90-90 target for that and over 90% of those people on treatment are undetectable you know so it's things are working things are working these are like kind of globally sort of good numbers yeah oh they're extraordinary you know Australia should be really proud of of where we're at and that's come from 30 years of hard work and as I said you know heavy lifting from the positive community um, in spite of criminalization stigmatization and surveillance so what so that when things are good you know it's it's naturally i think it's a it's a very uh natural thing for people within a bureaucratic state system to start looking for what else they can do and i really do think that that's where that kind of identified database idea came from it wasn't necessarily some sort of orwellian nightmare although that's certainly how it reads from the outside sure sure it's actually 
it's actually a, a, an effective department uh, kind of investing in some in some what what can we do now to sure kind but of, I mean that's the nature of kind of the, the evils of bureaucracy yeah, yeah it's like it's totally. not your intent just, totally yeah and it, but you know, and I think they were kind of caught by surprise when the community reacted so strongly uh, against that against that measure. And that's really just on um, the surveillance side of stuff. When it comes to the criminalisation aspects, it's even uh, more terrifying because laws are actually going backwards. Because we had a we had a big uh, development in in that area in New South Wales just just a month ago. Yeah, absolutely. So all this is actually tied. All that surveillance stuff was tied to the changes uh, to the Public Health Act. And one great win we've had uh, was that people in New South Wales are no longer required to disclose their status, uh, which is the same in Victoria, and it's a good thing. Um, the, the, the payoff of that initially seemed to be this identified database thing, which, which we worked hard to, to strike. Mm. And then out of nowhere, this change that the Public Health Act came through that um, people living with HIV don't have to disclose, but everyone, all of them, all of us, have to take reasonable precautions. That's not such a bad thing but uh if you don't take those reasonable precautions um you can find yourself up for an eleven thousand dollar fine and or six months in jail Mm. now that kind of punitive measure is just beyond the pale yes it's uh it's terrifying i mean terrifying uh, talking about i guess the the impact of say prep on the levels of hiv stigma in in the broader gay community that, that almost feels like this sort of like HIV negative gay men are sort of like having this passive experience of, of their HIV stigma being being reduced. Do you feel like there needs to be more of a bridge into more active support to, to fight these sorts of acts of criminalization? I think it's absolutely vital that we do it. And, 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 it, and I, it, it speaks to me of where we're at in terms of intersections with identity politics and, and kind of neoliberalism i mean prep is preps a pretty neoliberal thing in and of itself sure you know the individual takes care of themselves whereas you know i think that That is explicitly being framed that way absolutely whereas for positive people you know it's a bit more socialist you know we we kind of shoulder the burden we we take care of everyone we you know we we move and lift us as a community um and of course can be if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you said be the same of 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 the prep community as well and and i really should point out that um the advocates and architects of the prep movement in australia and uh, what i've seen overseas uh 
are absolutely community minded mm. and and we're very fortunate that those individuals uh, know their history and, and have a have a, seem to display an understanding of the fact that prep as a movement as a thing would not exist were it not for the people living with HIV who put their body on the line um, to get us to where we are today. One of the things that I really like about HIV activism and, and the history of it, and I guess having having had the opportunity to learn a lot about that over various jobs that I've had, is how how good it is at potentially at least positioning gay men and and queerness generally within all sorts of other frameworks of oppression, because it you know HIV just sort of intersects with you know with poverty, with with feminism, with kind of globalization issues. Do you think that? In Australia at this moment, the ways that we talk about HIV take advantage of that potential? Uh, oh, there's always room for improvement. I mean, Australia is uh, different to other uh, country-level responses in that it's so overwhelmingly MSM, so men of sex with men, so gay and bisexual men, or, or those who, who don't identify in that way. Um, you know, still overwhelmingly. Less so year by year, but I think there is a real historical anchor to that idea that HIV and AIDS in Australia equals gay men. The numbers would suggest that, but, you know, every year the, the ratio of newly diagnosed PLHIV who are men who have sex with men versus other priority populations is, um, uh, is shifting. Why? Uh, well, I think, well, because we're seeing, you know, I mean, the last couple of years we're absolutely seeing a, a, a scale up around PrEP and that's, you know, I mean... New South Wales earlier this year in one quarter, and it's only one quarter's worth of data we should point out, but they had the lowest rates of new HIV notifications since records started being Mm. taken in the 80s. I mean, that's an extraordinary achievement. That is entirely to do with five solid years of hard work in education at a community level around undetectable viral load and a few recent years of hard work around PrEP uptake. Um, So that's been... That's been extraordinary, um, but we're seeing now, of course, that means that there's all those spaces that haven't had target and focus, um, and include migrant communities in that, um, and subsets within the MSM community, and this is also a really important distinction around the experiences of, say, international students and migrant workers who are MSM, and, of course, skyrocketing rates of HIV in um, First Nations communities. Now, all of these things are not... Uh, never seen before anywhere else globally like there's plenty of of incidents of of high rates of hiv in first nations community in in other countries i mean canada is Mm. a really great example um and not to mention of course the experience of migrant women and migrant communities in other places etc but i think that australian the australian response was built on such a bedrock of gay men that you know 30 plus years of community organizing around that community mean that it's getting harder and harder uh, to uh, bring women in at a meaningful level, to bring migrant communities in at a meaningful level and, and you know, shamefully, um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people at a meaningful level. Has that been done more successfully in, I don't know, say a country like the US where the epidemic has been less kind of specific to MSM communities? I think so. I think, you know, you, you just have to look at the diversity of uh, 
where campaigns are aimed in the mm. United States. You know, you see you see billboards around about HIV and AIDS in places um, that have you know um, heterosexual African American couples at the centre of those campaigns. I mean, it would be yeah, extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, can imagine, can, can, can you yeah. imagine one of the AIDS councils rolling something out like that? It would beg his belief that that would happen. I think it should happen. And, you know, we're seeing incremental improvements around trans inclusion on these campaigns and things like that. And, and certainly much more diverse. I think ACON's pretty great at ensuring that their campaigns um, appear diverse. But whether or not those messages and those targeted messages are getting through, that's another question. We're in, I think, a bit of a moment now for an increasing focus on intersectionality within, like, communities generally i would say but i hope particularly within uh, queer communities and lgbti communities yeah. do you think hiv is a useful lens through which to approach those sorts of questions i think it's i think it's an invaluable lens i think that you look at the resilience and capacity of the plhiv community to affect change and that could be and should be a really useful uh, example uh, for I think younger queers stepping up into activism these days, I think that we have a slight problem in that HIV and AIDS is, is seen to be an issue that is a little bit separate to the modern queer movement here in Australia. I think because of its historical ties to uh, gay men, and I think that there is a uh, uh, not necessarily through the fault of um, younger queers, but there is a disdain and a distance um, for. Um, the history of, of homosexual liberation in this country uh, because of, uh, I think, perceived ties to a, a misogyny and, and a racism that are um, aspects of the homosexual community here in Australia. So you're saying that like this new sort of movement towards, say, intersectionality or a more inclusive community, is it like potentially explicitly rejecting that history? I, I, I mean, I, I've seen examples of that directly uh, that... And it's interesting to see some younger queers be called out for homophobia. I mean, I, I look at that and I go, my God, that's, that's genuinely fascinating just from a social you know, yeah. observing kind of point of view. Um, and it's, 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 not because, it's not because the younger queers are inherently homophobic or anything like that. It's because of the resistance to queer politics and social change being pushed by the queer community that has been rejected and dismissed by some gay elders. Mm. I mean, that's so... There's something sort of quite sad about that because these are, are, you know, both really important movements. They they have so much in common um, growing out of very... Obviously, very different historical moments, but but there's, there's clearly a kind of connection there. Is there a way? I mean, queer history is something you and I are, you know, both super interested in. We've we've had a lot of conversations about our interest in this stuff. Do you think that there is a way to bridge that divide from either direction without it just becoming a kind of like you know, listen to your elders, youngins? I hope so. I really, really hope so. I mean, I think that elder respect and understanding, I think, is is really core and and. I mean, I kind of loathe. I kind of loathe just wholesale appropriation of this. But you know, the the, the tiny, tiny, tiny amount of work that I've done with um, First Nations mob in Australia has shown that the the value that um, you get from prioritizing and valuing elders. Mm. 
and that in itself comes with a whole range of, of issues. Um, and I'm certainly not suggesting that, you know, white-led queer movements, and let's be honest, um, th- the majority of queer and, and gay spaces in Australia are still white-led. Um, I'm certainly not suggesting that we just kind of go, oh, yeah, let's just, let's just, do, let's just do what they do. Yeah, yeah for sure. But, but there's absolutely, I think, value in, in understanding and, and starting at a place of respecting elders. That also needs to be tied to challenging their beliefs. The struggle for marriage equality um, protracted endless, seemingly endless until very recently, as it feels, has caused a lot of tension uh, within the community and inflicted a lot of hurt onto the community from outside forces. I think that we look uh, looking around at, at the impact of it has greatly affected us, all of us, you know, and and a combination of, of feeling invisible or not uh, listened to or, or the, that we're all signing up to fight for what is largely, a, you know, a, a very traditional structure that became a symbol for something so much larger. And I acknowledge that it is a huge symbol and, 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 it, and it is important. It's really, it was important to, to defeat the no side. Um, but in doing so, you've kind of had to uh, push aside some very real and important arguments uh, about what the queer community should be prioritising. Um, and that groundswell of support, all those phone bankers, all those people, all those LGBTIQA people stepping up to join and fight that movement, that energy won't be seen again. It's not possible to try and convince all of those queer people and our allies that trans rights are just as important as marriage equality. That's not going to happen. You know, we're not going to see that same amount of people fighting to prevent, um, you know, uh, medical interventions on young intersex people. I wish, I mean, obviously as a HIV activist, I wish we could translate even just the gay men who still stepped up for marriage equality to be as remotely interested in ending HIV as that. And that's where a lot of my frustration around the blood equality movement comes. Yeah, sure. Do you want to talk about that? I love talking about yeah, blood equality. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, people might have seen this uh, in the last couple of years. It, it, it uh, gained momentum, especially after some sort of emergency where people need to donate blood. Um, so uh, men have sex with men, uh, prohibited from donating blood uh, because... Uh, we uh, have very high risk of being exposed to HIV and AIDS because we make up the vast majority of of people living with HIV in this country. So there has been increasing conversations around how discriminatory that is because, you know, uh, why would someone be punished for their identity uh, instead of their behaviour? Uh, so, as the kind of call to end the discrimination of, of um, uh, marriage, um, of, 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 of not allowing same-sex marriage to occur, so too has this idea, well, we should get rid of all, everything else that's discriminatory towards gay people, including the blood ban. My thinking around that uh, is that uh, the most ethical way we could end the gay blood ban is to end HIV. Um, because whilst it might feel discriminatory and offensive for a 
gay man to be judged based on his identity as opposed to his behavior. Anything else apart from ending HIV just kind of throws all of us under the bus. And I think particularly looking at the a lot of the language that's used around the blood mm. equality stuff, I find it very difficult to read it as anything other than almost the most public example of gay men's HIV stigma that's around today. Absolutely. I mean, there's just a lot of talk about, you know, and I mean, not just HIV. This is the thing. Like, I'm in a monogamous relationship with my partner. Why shouldn't we be able to donate blood? I feel like the undercurrent to that in some ways being, I'm not a slut. Absolutely. Or, or even I'm not a bad person. I'm not that. You were talking about it before. I'm not one of those, you know, quote unquote, bad gays. Yes. And I mean, I mean, obviously this really sticks in my craw um, because of the scaling up of respectability politics during the fight for marriage equality. Mm. You know, I... I used to, you know, when one of my articles about something or other would go online, you know, people would people would comment or message me and say it's irresponsible for us to be showing this part of our community yes. during the fight for marriage equality because it's going to make people not want to support us. Totally. Yeah, I've seen similar things. Yeah, and I, I mean, that's just... I mean, that for me is absolutely extraordinary. Like, what on earth are we fighting for if not to be able to be our authentic selves? I understand and recognize the frustration of a particular subset of gay men who might be in that kind of monogamous relationship space, who might really value, um, you know, stepping up and doing their civic duty and donating blood. And it must not feel very nice when you are told you can't do something because uh, because you are magnetically attached to uh, a community. My response to that is you are magnetically attached to a community totally like it or not you have a relationship to hiv yeah absolutely and uh, i fully support the repeal of the gay blood ban when it becomes scientifically impossible to deny the fact that hiv is no longer a problem in this country i mean obviously as a person with hiv i'm not giving blood anytime soon but i it, it, you know it just it's it's crazy to me that the the people who are kind of you know, leading the charge for blood equality, they could be putting all that energy into convincing their friends to, you know, help end HIV. But historically, we have so much internalized stigma and, and shame around HIV. That uh, doesn't surprise me, but it certainly um, depresses me. Do you think that the generational divide that we were talking about before is at all in part about? a desire for young people to distance themselves either consciously or unconsciously from HIV itself? Uh, I can't say that in, in the people I've seen making noise around blood equality uh, that I've witnessed any particular generational trend. It tends to be kind of across the board. Um, individual responses, depending on generation, might be slightly different, but I don't think it's necessarily a generational thing. I suppose, I mean, not just around blood equality, but I guess this disconnect or, or, or disengagement from the history of gay activism or queer activism, do you think part of that at all is about, yeah, I don't know. I mean, but the, the, is there an undercurrent of respectability politics there or an undercurrent of, yeah, just a desire to distance themselves from, from HIV? I think, I, I think that you could absolutely make that, that claim and, and uh, it's... it's very, very much so. Well, well, not even, actually, let me rephrase that. Not, okay. not even necessarily a desire to distance themselves, but a kind of like... So much of this stuff is crazy to talk about because it, it really didn't... You know, the, the sort of worst of the AIDS epidemic in Australia was not 
very long ago. I mean, mm. you know, it, like, people were still dying in large numbers like 20 years ago, yeah. you know. I don't know, is that sort of treated as really sort of like so alien or such a kind of completely different experience that it's almost like HIV becomes this like symbol of just a, a line in the sand that marks a different kind of gay identity from anything we can relate to now? Yeah, I think so. I think so. And, and, and the problem there is that we've just had the new line in the sand emerge and there's nothing more frustrating than a loose end. You know what I mean? So like... Being marriage equality. Being marriage equality, yeah, yeah sorry. So, I mean, so it's that, it's that weird, annoying thing where marriage equality is done now and it's like, yay! And it's like, there's so many other loose ends, you know, and HIV is just one of them, you know. You know, LGBT mental health, intersex rights, trans rights, you know, all these things. All these things are, are messy, they are messy, loose ends. And if there's anything a respectable, um, up, morally upright, you know, liberal voting gay man hates, it's a, it's a loose end. <laughs> <laughs> um, and depending what side of the bed I wake up on, like sometimes I'm like, I completely get it. I understand. It, it must be frustrating. Um, and the other part of me just goes, well, fucking deal with it. Like you don't get to dictate the terms of our community just because you've managed to, you know, quickly ascend the ladder of privilege. And really that's what it comes down to a lot of the time. We're talking here about a subset of the gay community who is affluent, connected, largely white. And, I mean, all of these things are, you know, gay or not, classic indicators of of, um, astonishing lack of empathy for their fellow human being. Like, so what do we do? We either try to work with a broader as broader a number in our community as we can and that includes bringing with this more conservatively minded homosexual people as well as you know uh you know radical queers into a, a space where we can all work together and that happens it certainly happened around safe schools um and certain aspects of the recent postal survey we saw that occur so we know it's possible do you think that it's difficult if not impossible to broaden out these conversations in that way around rights-based activism like you know the right to give blood or like the the right to get married is just the nature of those fights makes it harder to have the kind of complex conversations you're talking about compared to issues that are more tied to broader kind of social inequalities like capitalism for example of course absolutely because you know those those hills, um, the hills of marriage equality, the hill of um, of blood equality, etc. They're much easier to to climb or die on. <laughs> yes. um, trying to dismantle the patriarchy or trying to dismantle capitalism, these things are complex, and you are going to find people uh, within the queer community for whom this is not only not a priority, but who disagree with you. And we've seen the same in marriage equality, but, you know, I think it was an effective way of bringing everyone together to fight an external evil. But, I mean, I mean, you can, you can apply the same if you want to talk around, you know, bodily autonomy and queer sex work and things like that. There are a subset of queer feminists, um, or radical feminists, who disagree with sex work. So, you know, that's a big thing. And, of course, we are a complex you know multi-headed hydra within the community with with many different opinions that's never going to change it's going to get more complex and i think where the frustration lies with some 
energies in the broader LGBTIQA community is that they long for simplicity. And that this is partly a generational thing uh, because back in the day it felt a lot more simple because it felt like what we were talking about was gays, sometimes lesbians. There were some fringe elements to the side of it that actually oh, we're talking here about trans identity, gender non-conforming, intersex yes, yeah. people, queer people. It felt they were a lot more fringe. That's not the case today. And what we need to communicate as kindly as possible is that it's not going to ever go back that way. So if you need to retire, we fully support you to retire. But retiring from the community means getting the fuck out of the way. Mm. And that's really, that's where a lot of my frustration sits in the HIV response in this country at the moment is that we are constantly coming up against gatekeepers. I fully, I have total empathy and understanding for why that gatekeeping is occurring. We're talking here about an epidemic that decimated large parts of, of, of our community and the loss and trauma from that time, I can never, I will never be able to wrap my head around as a younger activist. And for people who were there at that coalface in that you know, protracted period of time, it's not just their identity, it's, it's become their entire life. And it's impossible to get them to just walk away from it. But that's causing some, that's caused some really se- serious problems in the last five years. That's probably a good place to, to finish. Thank you very, very much, Nick. Thanks, Ben. Ben here again. I hope you enjoyed the interview. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with a regular episode of Queers, but in the meantime, if you'd like to get in touch, you can do so via email at queerspodcast at gmail.com or we're on Facebook and Twitter at Queers Podcast. I'm on Twitter at Ben C. Riley, and Simon is at Simon Copland on Twitter and at Simon Copland Writer on Facebook. You can find episodes of the podcast on our website, queers.podomatic.com, or subscribe to us on iTunes, where if you rate and review us, it will help others find the show. Finally, if you're enjoying Queers, tell a friend. Word of mouth is the best way we have to find new listeners. Thanks, as always, for listening. Earbuds, Melbourne's podcast network. Earbudsnetwork.com.